Real Men Feel with Andy Grant encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been told, all emotions do serve you. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. I'm an author, coach, and healer. You know, Real Men Feel is now in our fifth year of production and by far the most mentioned book that I hear from, from listeners, from fans, from men I meet is No More Mr. Nice Guy. In 2020, I began facilitating men's groups at mensgroup.com and at least three quarters of the guys that would come join the groups said they had read No More Mr. Nice Guy. I was extremely resistant to reading this book myself. I was aware of it for years, as I said, but I didn't finally read it until the final days of this past December. I have been called a nice guy for much of my life, most often by girls who would say, why can't I be a nice guy like you? And I'm like, I'm literally standing in front of you. <laughs> uh, and I also hated that saying, nice guys finish last. Um, that phrase was something I ruminated on as, as, a, as a kid, uh, spiraling into depression and suicidal thoughts that I was aware I was nice. People said I was nice. Nice guys finish last. And it just, it was, it, it tormented me. So I was afraid reading this book was going to come off as very judgmental. I thought it was going to be rehashing all sorts of old shit. Um, I thought I was going to feel like shit reading it. And that's why I put it off. To my pleasant, happy surprise, I agreed with just about everything I read in this book. My, I was so happy to discover my path of self-awareness, growth, and healing aligned with like most of the recommendations. So I'm very excited today that my guest has over 30 years of experience as a therapist, coach, educator, and public speaker, and is the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, Dr. Robert Glover. Welcome Andy. to the show. Ah, thanks for that, that buildup. <laughs> I enjoyed that. <laughs> Good. So um, let, let's dive right in. And this was something even, again, before reading the book, just hearing this term, is being nice the same as being a nice guy? Well, yeah, it's good to to de define this because you know the, the the title is a little bit um, counterintuitive. You know, people might pick up a book and say, "No more, Mister Nice Guy." Why would somebody write a book teaching men to be not nice? There's already enough not nice men out there. But you know, it's it's one of those things that probably everybody at some point or another has declared, "No more, Mister Nice Guy." I'm not putting up with this anymore. And, and, you know, it, it, it made for a clever title for, for working with men that, that have this belief system that if I'm just a good guy, if I do everything right, if I make everybody happy, if I don't have any fault, faults or mistakes or problems, then I'll be liked and loved and get my needs met. So this is people working from a very specific paradigm, usually internalized at a very young age as, as a survival mechanism, which is completely different than being a decent human being. You know, when I tell people, you know, when they ask about what I do or I tell them about my book or what I teach men, they'll often say, well, you, you seem like a really nice person. And, and I'll go, well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that because I would I believe I'm I'm a genuine, uh, caring, gen, generous, authentic person. Um, but that's not where I get my value. And it's not how I think I'm going to be liked and loved. So that, that that's the primary distinction. Hmm. So again, so it's the driver. It's not being nice. It's why you're being nice. 
It, it's, it's what's hidden underneath that. It's, it's what I call the covert contracts. If I just do this, then this will happen. And I, I talk about those covert contracts in the book. And most, most nice guys aren't even aware they're operating from a strings attached manipulative agenda. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll treat this woman well. I'll listen to her talk. I'll volunteer to help her sister move. You know, I'll, I'll just be different than all those jerks I've heard. When, then she'll like me and want to get naked with me. And, and, you know, then when they don't, and we just end up in the friend zone or, you know, then we go, well, you know, that's not fair. I did everything right. You know, why didn't this woman want to be my girlfriend? And then you can just spread that out to work, to marriage, to, to everything else where we're trying to do it right, hoping that people in the world respond in the ways that we have planned. Right. Cool. So you mentioned it's a, it can be a survival mechanism. So, so what goes into the creation of, of nice guy syndrome? Well, it, it is a survival mechanism. And how I usually tee this up or, or, or kind of lay it out is that every child, every human being at birth is completely needy, dependent, and emotionally narcissistic. They are the center of the cosmos. And, and there's no distinction between them and others. And because they're, they're completely needy and dependent, their biggest fear is abandonment. And, and for a child, abandonment feels like death. It's the possibility of death. And there's nothing a child can do about it. So when a child begins to have uncomfortable or painful experiences, which all children do, um, they interpret that as I might die. And they begin to develop survival mechanisms, even before they have language ability or before their cognitive parts of their brain are actually working. When, when we're born, the only parts of our brain that are fully online is a very primitive part uh, down in the brain stem that, that regulates survival, heartbeat, breath, fight, flight, freeze, that, that whole amygdala survival mechanism is online at birth. So we start storing up emotional memories in that part of our brain. And that emo those emotional memories become our emotional operating system, our DOS, our machine language that we carry into adolescence and adulthood. So every time a child experiences something that's uncomfortable or painful, um, they experience as they are the cause. Now, it's not intellectual, it's emotional. And that's kind of the challenging part to get across. It's not like the child sits there thinking, I'm worthless, I, I caused you know, mommy to be depressed, or I'm bad, I caused daddy to get angry. They don't think it, they just feel it. Right. And that's why it's so powerful. Now, every human being then develops a couple of survival slash defense mechanisms to deal with these uncomfortable feelings. One is to try to moderate them or minimize them in the moment. Maybe you cry, maybe you suck your thumb, maybe you sleep, maybe you throw a tantrum. Every little child does something to try to moderate the uncomfortable feelings. The second thing that every child tries to do without any cognitive ability, keep this, this is so important, no cognitive ability, just purely emotional survival mechanisms, is to develop survival mechanisms to try to prevent these uncomfortable events from happening again in the future. Every human being does this. Uh, we, we can talk more about this maybe a little bit when we talk, if we talk about relationships, because we all then enter relationships as adults with these survival mechanisms in place. So being a nice guy or a nice girl is just one, one manifestation of, of any number of survival mechanisms children develop. And typically it means I will try to become what I believe other people want me to be and hide anything that might get a negative response from anybody, and then I'll be okay. 
then I'll have no more pain. Everything will be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Reading the book, I, it so resonated with me and was bringing me back to, uh, you know, experiences as, as a kid and, you know, my parents divorced when I was five years old. My dad was like a holic mental illness ran in both sides of the family. At the same time as the divorce, I started getting molested by a neighbor. And mm. I thought, I, I kept everything to myself because I thought, well, if I'm a good boy, if I work hard to be a good boy, everything will be fine. And so mm. before I was a nice guy, I was a good boy. And it, so since so much of this is set forth in childhood, it, does it show up? Or does it express while we're children, or do some people not realize it until they're adults? Like, like can can nice guyness, can, can nice guy syndrome show up at any point in our lives? You know, here's the two most common scenarios, and it, 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 I think part of it depends on on a person's inherent temperament. Uh, I, I have a pretty easygoing temperament. At least I think I do. Uh, my friends and family all tell me I'm pretty controlling, but I, th- I think I'm easygoing. Uh, I just know what I like <laughs> and I like things the way I like them. So, but you know, like my, my mother, bless her heart, w- would tell almost any woman I ever got involved with, Bobby never did like conflict. Kind of like, you know, don't be mean to my boy. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I, you know my, I'm, I was in my 50s when I met my present wife, and my mother even told her that, you know, Bobby never did like conflict. I'm thinking, well, who the fuck does like conflict? You know, but I tend to attract people who do. So, you know, there are people who enjoy con- So that's my temperament. I'd rather just, can we just talk about this and resolve it and move on? That's kind of how I am. Other people be, oh, here's a chance. Let's fight. You know, <laughs> let's yell at each other. Let's scream. Let's withdraw. Let's make the other person bad. And I'm going, why can't we just do it the easy way? So everybody has their own temperament about things, okay? And, and so a lot of nice guys have an inherent temperament that, that maybe they're a little bit withdrawn or a little bit easygoing or a little bit just want everything to be okay, um, go along to get along, and it's just temperament, right? Now, it, it, it becomes toxic or painful when it becomes part of our life paradigm that I have to go along to get along with everything or I can never have a conflict or everybody has to like me or approve of me, that that's when it becomes toxic. So for a lot of nice guys, they can look back and say, yeah, I, I was always a nice guy. I was a nice kid. I was nice in junior high. You know, I tried to treat the girls different so that they would like me. Uh, you know, I was nice to my first wife, my second wife. I tried to make them happy, gave them everything they wanted. It was never good enough, that kind of thing. Now, the second trajectory that I often see, and in the book, I talk about what I call the I'm so good, nice guy, and the I'm so bad, nice guy. I I represent the I'm so good, nice guy. I I had no awareness of my own internal toxic shame. I I thought, hey, I'm a nice guy. You know, I'm I'm great. I'm amazing. Everybody should like me. And and I, I, I kept all of my darkness, my flaws, my mistakes, my insecurities locked up really tight inside in a little tight box where I never had to really look at them. They still manifested. I just didn't look at them. Now, that's the I'm so good nice guy. The I'm so bad nice guy is often a a nice guy that for, again, often because of temperament, maybe they're a little bit oppositionally defiant as a child. They pushed back against everything the parents or school said kind of like no if i do it your way then you win and i lose and so there's the pushback uh it's not unusual for them to have um add or learning disorders or tendencies maybe towards addictions where where they kind of find themselves spinning out of control often beginning in adolescence and then into early adulthood um 
Now, for these guys, what often happens is that at some point in life, you know, they, they have a come to Jesus meeting. You know, they, they join the military and get some discipline, or they get married and decide, I got to settle down, or their, their addictions get the best of them. So, you know, they join a 12 step program, or they have a, they have a child and they go, I got to change my life. Something happened. Maybe they find religion, right? And now they think, I got to become a better person. And now they start applying the nice guy paradigm that the I'm so good nice guy's been applying all of his life. Well, if I'm if I do what I think everybody wants me to do, then I'll be liked and loved. Or I hide everything about me. Then, I, you know, nobody have negative reaction. But the core problem for the I'm so bad nice guys is they can see that this is kind of a thin veneer and they, they expect anybody they meet to quickly see right through them and just see how fucked up they really are. Cause they can look back on their life, man, I was fucked up. I started smoking pot at 13. You know, I, I, I was having sex at 14. I got kicked out of school or, you know, I, I, I got kicked out of the military or, you know, I, I stole or, you know, they, they can look back and see all that stuff and think that's, that's who I am. And so they have to try even harder to try to compensate and, and be even a better guy to make up for their dark past. Those extremes, or imagine anything in between those extremes as well, is, is the fuel behind the nice veneer and the, and the trying so hard. Um, yeah, Dr. Glover, what, what made you aware that you were a nice guy and what prompted you to do something about it? <laughs> well, my second wife kept telling me I wasn't a nice guy. Um, that, that's really where uh, that was my come to Jesus moment in that um, I, I married my second wife and I, I, you know, she was beautiful. She was gorgeous. She, she, she was amazing in many ways. Um, but as soon as we got married, she went into a deep depression, didn't want to have sex anymore, literally. And, um, and, and was angry all the time. And, and I just kept trying harder and harder to make her happy and, and you know, to, to get everything back to good, to, to back to how things were before we got married. And um, about two, three years into the relationship, I had an inappropriate relationship with another woman, uh, which my wife found out about about a year later. And, you know, her, her basic statement was, you know, I can't tolerate this. Everybody thinks you're a nice guy, but they don't know, you know, what a jerk you really can be. She said, I would rather be with a jerk. At least I know a jerk's going to treat me consistently. You treat me nice, and then you do things to hurt me. And she said, I can't take your passive aggressiveness anymore. I, I, I had a PhD in marriage and family therapy. I didn't know what passive aggressiveness was. So she said, you need to go get help. You need to go get therapy. So I, I went to therapy actually trying to find out why being a nice guy didn't make her treat me better, why it didn't make her happy, why it didn't make her want to have sex. So um, I ended up with a therapist and I ended up in a 12-step group for sex addicts because she said, you're a sex addict. I quickly found out I wasn't having enough sex to be a sex addict, but it was like a monumental moment in my life that I, I went to these meetings. It was all guys, about eight, nine, ten guys. And um, for the first time in my life, I started just revealing me revealing everything about me that I'd always kept in because of my toxic shame. I, I grew up in a fundamental Christian church. Uh, I had two degrees in religion. I was a minister for eight years. I had a, a critical, uh, angry father that I tried to please. I grew up during the angry feminism of the 60s and 70s, where I tried not to be a bad man. And so for the first time in my life, I just started revealing me, and it was so liberating. I got into with some good therapists along the way. 
uh, joined a men's group. And then along the way, I was, I was, you know, I was working as a marriage and family therapist. I started noticing a lot of the guys coming to me, um, often with their girlfriend or wives were saying the same thing I did. I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. I'm better than her ex. I treat her than her ex-husband. I'm raising her kids. I do whatever she wants. She wants a new car. I buy her car, but it's not good enough. And she never wants to have sex anymore. And she's always angry. Or the single guys would say, like you did, women tell me all the time, I'm such a nice guy. They want to meet a nice guy like me someday. Or someday you're going to make some lucky woman really happy. And you're going, well, why not you and I, huh? You know, how about I make you really happy? So, and, and so whether it was since I was in a relationship, those were the, the guys I'm most related to. But there was those single guys, like I said, that, that thought, hey, I'm doing everything the women say. Don't be a jerk. Don't, don't treat them like sex objects. You listen to them talk, you know, be there for them. But they don't want to date me. I end up in the friend zone. I think that was might have been before the friend zone was a commonly used term. But, um, yeah, they just want to be friends. So, uh, 25 plus years ago, I started uh, leading uh, my first No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group. And along the way, I was working on my stuff, really getting a bigger picture of this nice guy syndrome and realizing I wasn't the only one. I wasn't the only guy thinking of, I just, you know, am a nice guy. Everybody will like me and love me. So I started just writing just chapters to give to these guys when we met every week. And I just kept writing and people kept saying, Robert, you need to write a book. You need to go on Oprah. There's lots of people that need this book. So I, I kept writing, never got on Oprah, but um, kept writing. And the book came out in print uh, about 18 years ago. And uh, the royalty checks keep getting bigger every year. So I, I think, uh, you know, more and more men like you finally get around to reading it. And then, yeah. then, they, then they go tell other people or put me on their podcast. Yeah, it's good. I really wanted to ask that. Like, how has the, have the sales, the interest of the book? So it's grown each year. It, so it, 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 it keeps going up. Yeah. I would say for about the first 10 years or so, not, nothing overwhelming. Yeah. Um, but I would say for probably close to the last 10 years, yeah, just, just, it, it just keeps growing all mm-hmm. the time. And, um, it, it, you know, it feels good, not just because the royalty checks get bigger. I mean, I like that, sure. But what, what, what I really like is I, I, I tell the story that when, when I did the book tour for No More Mr. Nice Guy back in 2003, uh, you know, did a lot of interviews on radio and television and newspapers. And I often got asked, did, did I see a worldwide men's movement coming like uh, feminism, like the women's movement? I said, no, not really. I said, I don't think there's really any one cause to bring men together. Now, I, I, I was right and wrong. Um, I, I was right. Probably there's not one cause, but maybe there is. And, and I was wrong because men are coming together worldwide. And what I believe is they're coming together looking for tribe. Men need men. We need to connect with men. You know, your, your, your core shtick is men and feelings. I mean, most men hide our feelings from women because we don't want to be judged. We don't want to be seen as weak. We don't want to be criticized. But when we get around safe men, we can feel safe to reveal every aspect of who we are. So what I see is that worldwide, thanks to the Internet, podcasts, interviews like this, um, there's a, a, a plethora of men's coaches now, um, and again, it almost doesn't seem to matter how men come into this kind of worldwide tribe. It can be like joining a, a men's divorce group or a men's you know, Bible study group in their church. It can be going to a pickup boot camp. It, it could be 
taking martial arts or joining a 12-step program, uh, joining a men's therapy group. What I'm just finding more and more is that men are realizing they got to connect with men. They may think, oh, I want to learn martial arts, but they end up connecting with men. They may think, I need to get sober, but they end up connecting with men. And then it seems like the men in their 12-step program or their men's groups or wherever are saying, hey, you got to read this book. And so, you know, therapists, word of mouth, internet just really seems to be spreading the word about it. Cool. Well, yeah, it's very, I, th- I think it's better to be early than late, then you're, you're chasing this issue. But uh, so I love it that, you know, you're kind of ahead of the times of guys willing to look at themselves and wanting to change and, you know, that dropping this, this bullshit identity that I'm a man, I've got it all figured out. I don't need anybody. And yeah. that's what I find, you know, be it a bowling team or a therapy group. Like, yeah, yeah. you say that breaks Wait. it down. It makes that tribe. We, we need tribe. And yeah, when, when I first started looking, you know, I, I first found tribe in a 12-step group. And I thought, oh, this is good. And later found a men's group. They're pretty hard to find at the time. When I started my recovery, you've got the, the little uh, diagram behind you. That, in fact, I didn't even read that book for years. But, you know, when I started recovery, it's primarily, you know, Robert Bly's Iron John, Michael Mead. There are two or three books out there. Um, may, maybe uh, uh, The Myth of Male Power. You know, they're just three or four or five books. And that was it. Now, um, now I'm, I'm just grateful. There, there's so many books, so many coaches, so many programs out there helping men connect more deeply with themselves, become more authentic, become more passionate, more purposeful, and, um, and find other men to do that with. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. Another group of men that have come forth as listeners of the show and thank me for making a home for them are guys that identify themselves as highly sensitive men. Mm-hmm. So is, is high sensitivity or, is, is, you know, highly sensitive persons, is that different from nice guy syndrome? Um, you know, I, I think there's a definite overlap, uh, maybe a circle, you know, inside a circle. You know, a, a lot of men I work with, I, I, as I started paying attention, cause I've been working with men now. I, I've, I've been a therapist for over 30 years, but specifically working with men for 20 plus years. And I started paying attention to the things that, that men deal with that, that affects how we feel about ourselves and how, how we relate in the world. And there's a number of things that do tend to affect men that don't get talked about a lot more nowadays. ADD gets talked about quite a bit, but I, I bump into a lot of men that have undiagnosed adult ADD. And, you know, when I start noticing the, the signs of it, I'll, I'll ask them, have you ever considered you might be ADD? They go, well, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I got tested when I was a kid or my brother's ADD or, you know, I, I, I never paid attention in school and I started using drugs at a young age, which, you know, are all a lot of signs that maybe that ADD. But what happens for certain things like ADD, any kind of learning disorder um, and, and the, the, the sensitivity uh, that you talk about, highly sensitive. And there's a, a, another disorder, um, dysthymic is it DS dysthymic sensitivity syndrome? I, I, I forget the, but it is about people often who have ADD are highly sensitive to any perceived form of rejection. And so if you add that in, if you add in addictions, if you add in that a man might be somewhere on the autistic syndrome, there's a lot of things that men struggle with that, that to some degree women do as well. But if you did a bell curve, you'd see a lot more men dealing with, with what might be considered organic brain issues like ADD, like this, this high, highly sensitive uh, 
a motive state or or like um asperger's affects men a lot more than, than women i mean it, it still affects women but it's just proportionally so what happens is forever you know men didn't get these diagnoses they just knew that they struggled to make friends or to get along or to attract women or to get laid and all, or even just do math in school and and all they could figure is there's something wrong with me mm. And for so for a lot of nice guys, they've turned that there's something wrong with me and I got to try really hard to be good. So, yeah, I do see those patterns with a lot of nice guys. Yeah. Cool. How does being a nice guy affect intimate relationships as an adult? Uh, in every way, <laughs> you know, all the way from um, who we attract and who, who we get into relationship with. You know, I, I talk in the book that the nice guys are pretty good at, you know, finding a diamond in the rough and in terms of a woman or, or a partner, a guy, a gay guy, if they're gay, uh, and then polishing that person up. And then, ah, then I'll have this really great person because they've got these great qualities, but they just have these other couple of things that I can, I can help them get through. And I've done that. Um, and, it doesn't work. And I, I tell men now when it comes to relationship, how you find them is how they are and whatever good traits they have will probably um, shrink over time in relationship and whatever bad traits they have will probably grow. That just seems to be what happens in a relationship. Now, because nice guys tend to be attracted to fixer uppers because of our own insecurities, we don't tend to engage and interact with the kind of woman we'd really like to be with. Now I'm going to make a caveat for most guys. That means a really hot young woman. Um, But, but I promise you that is not what's going to make somebody happy or make a relationship work. Oh, she's hot. She's young. You know, my, my life is complete. No, (laughs) it's it's on its way to hell. Um, So, what happens when people get into relationships? And as I said, my, my background is in marriage and family therapy. So I've been working with relationships for forever. You know, since I started trying to work with my parents' relationship as a little boy. So here's what happens. I, I mentioned those, those survival mechanisms we carry into adolescence and adulthood. So all of us want to connect and the majority of us want sexual access. And that's why we get into relationship. And maybe a lot of us want to fit the societal uh, standards of, okay, I'm an okay person. I, I found a woman, I got married, I have kids, blah, 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 or whatever that, whatever that manifestation is. But for, I've worked with a lot of men that kind of like the 40 year old virgin, you know, either they've never been late or only had a few short-term girlfriends and they think they're terribly defective because they, they, they don't have a long-term relationship as if that was a sign of health or, or defectiveness. There's a lot of people like me, they get into long-term relationships that doesn't mean we're all that healthy. Um, I would, I'm just good at getting into long-term relationships. So, but what happens in every relationship for both, let's say we're talking about a heterosexual relationship, but it's true lesbian, it's true for gays. Both people have what I call uh, a number one relationship fear. And this number one relationship fear goes back to our first relationships as an infant. So if, if we tended to be smothered by our, our parents, one or more of them, we tend to have a fear of being trapped or smothered. If we uh, felt abandoned or neglected, we have a fear that we'll be abandoned or neglected. If we were abused or hurt, we have that fear. If we were controlled, we, we, that becomes our number one fear because as, as helpless, needy, dependent children, we had no resources to, to cope with that. So 
to deal with that number one relationship fear. I mean, most of us have more than one, but, but I, just to keep it simple, we usually have a number one, kind of the queen mother relationship fear. Now, to, to manage our desire to get close and have sexual access and deal with this deep fear of if I get close to somebody, this bad thing will happen to me. And in my workshops, I usually just go around and have the guy's name. What's their number one relationship fear? And, you know, it's always I'll get cheated on. I'll get left. I'll, I'll get abused. I'll be found out. I'll, I'll get smothered. She'll be controlling. You know, mine is, is that they'll never leave me. They just stick around and treat me bad. That's my number one fear. Um, so, to cope with this number one fear, we all develop what I call a number one relationship fear survival mechanism or defense mechanism. So if, if you have a fear of being smothered, and you, but you still want to be in a relationship, you're going to come to that relationship with a defense mechanism protecting you from being smothered. Now, it's, it's sometimes really interesting how these work out. So, for example, if you have a fear of being smothered or trapped, you may pick an unavailable woman. Or you may pick women that, that, that keep bailing or that can't get all in themselves and you keep trying hard to get them in. Um, but it, it actually serves your purpose that they don't ever get all the way in because that's your biggest fear. They get all the way in, you get trapped or smothered. Or let's say with, with that same fear, you might get with a woman, but you keep your walls up. You don't let her know what you're feeling, what you're thinking. Um, you know, you, 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 you disappear. You're unavailable. You're the runner. So it can manifest in different ways. But the reason, well, there's several reasons most of us struggle with intimate relationships, not just because we're nice guys, but we all are trying to get close to somebody and get love and get sex and, and get our social needs met while protecting ourselves from a great fear. And the other person is doing the same thing. They also have a number one relationship fear and their number one relationship fear defense mechanisms. And so you got two people trying to get some degree of connectedness and sexual access without their number one fear happening. And they're protecting themselves the whole time from it and probably projecting onto the other person, all of their old woundings that they've had with the opposite sex um, and projecting all the societal fairy tale stuff of what a woman can do for us or what a man can do for a woman. And, and then when that doesn't work, cause it never does, then we either think I must be defective or they must be defective. So I need to go find another one and start it all over again. And so as is 30 years of being, you know, a relationship therapist and being in my third marriage, uh, I've done all this. I've bumbled my way through all of this stuff as well, but that's what we all do. And, and that doesn't even begin to take into consideration uh, men and women were never programmed by evolution or mother nature to live in close proximity and pair bond for a lifetime. That's just not in our DNA. But we're trying to do that, too, because society says that's the way you do it. Is being a nice guy, is this something unique to American culture, or do you see this around the world? It, it seems to be worldwide. Um, you know, when I first wrote the book, because I, 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 I live in Mexico now, but then you know, I lived in, in the U.S., in, in a very nice part of the country, Seattle, Washington, where you know, a, lot, a lot of nice people there. Um, and when I got my first website built, the very first email I got was from somebody in Australia. And I remember telling my, my then second wife, I just got somebody from an uh, email in Australia. And she just looked at me and said, that's why they call it the World Wide Web. And I go, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't even thought that broadly. So 
the book's been translated into, I don't know, probably a dozen languages. And um, I, I get e emails from men all over the world, from, from Europe, uh, from Africa, a lot from India, a lot from Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Um, it, it exists in the macho cultures as well, Latin American. Um, not quite as much, but I think it's, it's going to keep growing, mainly because anytime you have a, a kind of a macho type culture where the men are, are entitled and, and, and raised by their mothers, basically. Macho just means uh, spoiled mother's boy, where they grow up thinking that women are here to meet my needs. What happens, and anytime you've got that, just like in America when we had the, you know, the, 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 the demanding king of the castle fathers, a lot of boys then started growing up wanting to be different than that, especially if their mothers told them they should be different than that, as, as my mother did to me. Um, so when you even have macho culture, or even you see like in ghetto culture, where you got kind of this ghetto, you know, macho mentality, a lot of nice guys come out of that as a reaction to not wanting to be that perceived bad man. So yeah, I, I see it, you know, cross cultures, I see it around the world. And, um, it seems to be growing in proportion. I think especially um, as just a, a lot more young men grow up in single-parent homes or don't have fathers nearby, it, it seems to be spreading. Yeah. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was how full of activities and actions and steps to take there are. Like, you, you can read it quickly if you just skip all that, but really you're doing yourself a disservice if you do that, I, I find. But if someone hasn't read the book, they're hearing this, they're, they're realizing, wow, I, I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm a nice guy. This is like an issue in my life. What's the, the best first step you might recommend? Uh, go buy my book. <laughs> Start with that. Uh, actually, if they go to my website, they go to drglover.com and click on No More Mr. Nice Guy. There's a, a little self-test that they could take that, that might just give them a clue. But imagine if they're listening to this, They'll either recognize themselves or if a woman's listening to this, she'll go, oh, that, that's my husband or boyfriend or brother or my ex. Um, you know, I, I told you, you know, men get ref find out about my book from a lot of different ways. But a, a, an unbelievable common way is ex-wives and girlfriends giving it to them. You know, that, that when the woman, hey, that's why my marriage ended. That's why and they give it to the guy. So um, the book is probably a good way to start. But in terms of just starting to break free from nice guy syndrome, I, the number one piece of recommendation I have is don't try to do this alone. Go find safe people. Go find a coach, a therapist, a men's group, a 12-step group, a study group, men's group, whatever. Go find somebody because there's a lot of things involved in breaking out of the nice guy syndrome. One of them is learning that you're not alone that you're not terminally unique in this way. And so sitting with a group of men and hear other guys tell the same story, maybe it's different details, but it sure sounds a lot like yours is liberating because you don't feel so unique. Finding a place to release our, our internalized toxic shame, that part of ourselves that says, I'm not good. I'm not lovable. I, I've got to try to be good to, to get love to release the toxic shame like I did in 12 step group and men's group and, and uh, have people just respond with, you know, thank you for sharing. No, no, you're not bad. That's normal behavior. You internalize that you're bad, but you're not. So to get more accurate feedback as to who we are and then learning to just accept our imperfections, that it's okay 
to, to be flawed because we all are. So I talk in the book about people connect with other people's rough edges. And as nice guys are trying to be these smooth Teflon kind of guys, like I never do anything wrong. I'm good at everything. There's nothing to connect with. And so going and working with safe people begins to reverse that process of that internalization that began as an early age that said, I, there's something wrong with me. I'm bad. I'm not good enough. I, I need to be different. And really, for me, recovery of the nice guy syndrome is not becoming a different person or a better person. It's becoming more ourselves. It's learning to accept and love me, you know, just the way I came into this world and then and then be that best me. But that doesn't mean I got to become better or different. Yeah, that, again, that's one thing that resonated and caught me by surprise. Um, this is something I preach all the time is just self-love, authenticity, like yeah. everything you want really it's it's here you just have covered it up with shit and lies and false identities and all sorts of just crap so yeah i i really appreciated that so i i mentioned earlier that i do facilitate groups at mensgroup.com and -hmm. i let the guy i let that whole community know that i was going to be talking to you so i have a i asked i put the word out that they could ask questions and i would bring them to the show okay every single question is about boundaries so could we start, could you maybe just you know, define, because that's, that's, I'm surprised how many guys know that word. That's, I think even five years ago, people were like, what, what does that mean? So t- tell us what you mean by boundaries first. Uh, okay. Yeah. I love talking about boundaries. Uh, we, we could do uh, several calls on boundaries. And, and as you said, you know, it's not a term that most of us are familiar with. And going back to when I started my own what I now call nice guy recovery. I didn't call it that when, when my wife said, you got to go get help. You know, mine was like I said, how how can I get her to appreciate me more? But the, uh, a therapist that I went to work with, and this was like in the very first session I had with this therapist is a woman therapist. Um, she, she worked with me around boundaries. Very first session. She got a string out, put it on the ground, kind of did this little physical role play thing where I'm on one side, she's on one side, and she came across my boundaries and pushed. And, 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 and anyway, I, again, I was, I was in my mid-30s in my second marriage and already had a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and I had never heard of boundaries. I did not know I could say no. I could say, stop. I can say, I don't want to. I could say, I'm going to. I could say, if you ever do that again, we're done. You know, or I'm going to take a break or I'm going to get off the phone or I'm going to go for a walk. I didn't know I could do any of that stuff. I thought you just had to sit there and take it. Now, the reason for that is, is because we were all children. And when we were all children, we were all smaller than everybody else. The big people could do whatever they wanted to the little people. Um, uh, our parents, our older siblings, neighborhood kids, teachers, priests, anybody could do whatever they wanted to the little kids. Um, you mentioned abuse in your childhood. You didn't, you couldn't stop it. You didn't have the power to, I, I have no doubt it was somebody in some way more powerful or bigger than you. That's the case. So what happens is every little child who has been done to by big people, which is everybody, grows up to be adolescent and adults, and there's no class anywhere along the way that says, all right, you're now a big person. You get to set boundaries now. You get to say, no, stop, don't do that. If you do it again, I'll leave. And and so that was so earth-shattering for me to realize I, I, I can do what's necessary to take care of my person, and I don't have to let anybody treat me badly. 
Um, I can remove myself if I need to. I can ask for what I want. I can say no. I can say stop. I'm going to say I'm taking a break now. And so once I started learning about that, I started teaching men about that. Because, again, you know, there's, there's no place in adulthood that you ever get taught about boundaries. And so for many of us, we grew up to be adults and either hiding everything from people or letting them treat us badly and letting resentment build or just keeping walls and distance with people so we don't get hurt. And so boundaries are actually what allow us to get close to people. And the analogy that I get is if, you, if you're driving your car and you, you get, you know, you're driving through a city and then you get on the freeway, there are a number of boundary markers along the way. Um, stop signs, stop lights, yield signs, speed limit signs, white stripes, yellow stripes. Um, all those are boundary markers and they allow a, a, a large number of cars to coexist in close proximity at high speed without all crashing into each other. Boundaries allow people to do the same thing. They allow us to get close and, and, not, and not destroy each other, right? Because if you don't have boundaries, you do have to either avoid people or put up pretty thick walls to keep them from getting too close so, so that they might hurt you. Mm-hmm. So boundaries do involve learning to ask for what you want. They, they involve learning to train people how they can treat us, or we get to decide who comes into our space, how long they stay, what they do while they're in there, when it's time for them to go. Now, again, for nice guys, this can be pretty challenging because we think, well, if I start setting boundaries, people aren't going to like it. And, and at times, they don't. You know, if you start setting boundaries with your family, for example, who were the first people who taught you, you don't get to have boundaries because you're little and we're big. Um, they may not react well. I had that experience with my parents um, where I started setting some boundaries with my mother. And uh, she just kept pushing through them and telling me I was wrong. And I ended up not talking to my parents for 15 years. Uh, I later reconciled with my father, and then when he had a stroke and passed away, I hashed everything out with my mother. And so for about 11 years now, we, we've had a much more boundary supportive relationship. But boundaries are essential. So, yes, some people may react negatively, but, but the truth is the majority of people, when we say, hey, that doesn't work for me, or hey, uh, yeah, I need you to lower your voice, or I'm going to get off the phone, I'll call you back when you're in a better mood, um, most people actually respond better and have respect for you. And I know when I was doing a lot of marriage counseling, I would do the same string on the floor example when I was working with couples. And I'd usually start with the guy and show him how to set boundaries. And, and, not, and they're, they're not about getting the other person to be different. They're about getting us to be different and, and inviting them to treat us in a certain way. And I, I would teach men, you know, how to set a boundary while their wives sitting on the couch watching. And I literally have had women applaud when, when I showed the guy how to set boundaries. And the guy would like, his jaw would drop and he said, you mean you want me to stand up to you, dear? And, and she said, of course I do. I, I don't want to be with somebody I can walk all over. I don't want to think that I'm a, I'm a bitch and, I, and you let me treat you badly. That doesn't feel good. And so I would tell the guys, she's telling you the truth. She really will feel safer if you can set boundaries and if she knows where your boundaries are. But I warn you, the first time you go to set a boundary with her, she's going to push against it. And you're going to ask her, why are you pushing against my boundary? You said in Dr. Glover's office, you want me to set boundaries. And she's going to say to you, I do, just not this one. And, and, and so she's going to, you know, kind of give it a push on that boundary. Just, but really, I found that women do that just to test it to see, can they trust it? Is it a secure boundary? And that usually gives people a sense of security when they know when the boundaries are. Now, I tell people, and my definition of boundary is, is, is 
the best boundaries are the ones that, that call everybody into higher consciousness, where we can let people know that their behavior is having a negative effect. Most people want to know that, you know, because where, where, where else do we go in school where we get feedback where people say, when you do this, it comes across in this way. Or when you do this, it puts people off. Nobody tells you that. There's no class in school where we learn those kind of social skills. And so boundaries help, help raise everybody's consciousness and allow people to get closer and have the kind of relationship that they want. And going back to that number one relationship fear, one of the ways we deal with that number one relationship fear is knowing we have good boundaries. Then we're not going to have quite so many fears of all the bad things that might happen to us because we know we can say no. We can say stop. We know we can remove ourselves, that we can end the relationship. So if you know those things, you can actually risk getting closer to people. Cool. I'm really glad that you used walls and boundaries because I think some guys hear boundary and they think I got to build a wall, yeah. right? I've got to make sure I never get hurt. That's my boundary. You can never feel me. You can never affect me. And like, no, that's not really. The... So more like guidelines and road markers, like you were saying. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I, I know what's out there in the manosphere that, that kind of masquerades as advice to, for men on relationship. And, you know, it saddens me that so much of it is, is us against them. You know, us guys against those women that are trying to take advantage of us and use us. So we got we to gotta build these big walls that don't let them ever get close enough to us that they can hurt us and take all our money. And, and you know, yeah, a lot of guys fall into that because it, it, it feels safer. Yeah. Um, but I don't know how to actually uh, love and be loved if you got walls up. Right. It just yeah, you can't work. Yeah, you can't. And, and, you know, what you just described there, that was my initial fear and resistance of, of what your book was going to be about. So like, well, if I'm not a nice guy, I have to be this alpha male prick all the time. Is that what this is going to tell me? And, uh, you know, no, it didn't tell me that. So. It didn't tell you that at all. <laughs> no, there, 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 there is a different approach. Awesome. So I feel like you, you definitely covered all the questions, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll ask a couple just to make sure we can get even clearer. But what's the number one thing a guy can do today to start getting better with boundaries? To start getting better with boundaries. Um, practice, 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 practice. Because um, every, every day we have opportunities uh, to, to practice and start paying attention to where, where you feel resentment, where you feel done to. Uh, where you're withdrawing in any kind of social situation. And that's probably where you need to start being a little bit clearer and, and speaking what you want, what you need, or what doesn't feel good to you. And another question is how to communicate your boundary without it being received as some sort of ultimatum. All right. Well, ultimatums are okay. They're, they're appropriate at times. I, I, I dated a woman for, for a few years and, um, I, and finally, the relationship ended because I, I gave her an ultimatum. I, I said, you know, your, your anxiety disorder is I can't live with it. And if you want to stay with me, you need to go get therapy and work on your anxiety. And she said, well, don't tell me what to do. Don't, I don't do well with ultimatums. And I said, relationships are all about ultimatums. I said, you always told me, don't lie to me, cheat on me or steal from me. I said, those sound like ultimatums to me. And I said, yeah, I am giving you an ultimatum. Go to therapy, work on your anxiety issues, or I will leave. And she said, well, I'm not going to let you tell me what to do. I left. Um, about six months later, she said, I, I went to therapy. I've been working on my anxiety issues. Can we try again? So 
in that case, you know, I gave an ultimatum and I left. I backed it up. I tell people, you're going to be willing. If you're, you're going to stand on the, on the edge of that cliff and say, here's my boundary, you better be willing to jump. You can't say, you go to therapy or I'm leaving, um, and then they don't go to therapy and you keep putting up with it. So, but here's, here's, here's a little, I, I think this is a neat little way to practice setting boundaries that don't come across as you're an ass, stop doing what you're doing, right? And, and it's real simple. And, and you can practice this in front of a mirror. And it begins by saying, ouch. Now, that, that gets everybody kind of off guard. Ouch. So somebody does something to you, says something, or ghosts you, or, or whatever. And when you have a chance to talk about it, you say, ouch, that hurt. Did you mean it to? Or, ouch, that felt dismissive. Did you mean it to? Or, ouch, that felt condescending. Did you mean it to? And the ouch disarms people, Right. And you didn't say you were dismissive of me. You said that felt dismissive. So you're saying how, how it landed for you. And then you're just asking them, is that what you meant? Is that the intent you had? So that's an invitation into higher consciousness. So you might say, ouch, that hurt. Did you mean it to? Well, and they may then become aware. Oh, I did something that hurt you. I didn't. I, no, I didn't mean to. I apologize. I'm sorry I hurt you. That wasn't my intention. But they didn't know they did something that hurt you until you let them know. So you raised their consciousness. Yeah. Or you may say that and they may pause and go, you know, I've been pissed off at you for a while. You know, I think I did mean to hurt you. Come to think of it. And then you go, well, why don't you actually just tell me what you're mad at me about instead of, you know, doing it in a sideways way. And then maybe you have a discussion about what they've been brewing on for who knows how long. That raises consciousness. Or maybe you say, ouch, that hurt. Did you mean it to? And they go, you're such a big baby. Man up and quit crying all the time. I don't hang out with those people. <laughs> there's, there's no reason to. I call those the professional boundary invaders. You know, <laughs> they, they violate your boundary, and then they're pissed at you because they think you, you did something wrong if you have a reaction to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I love that ouch exercise. I've not, I had not heard that. And it brings together three things that, that I see so many guys uh, need the strengthening in. And, can, can, and I know I resisted it, but taking responsibility, being authentic, and being vulnerable. Like yeah. all, all of that's in the ouch. That's all really of it's powerful. in the ouch. Yeah. yeah, it is powerful. Try it. Practice it in a mirror, and then it'll be more, more instinctive when, when you do need to do it. Instead of thinking 15 minutes later, oh, damn, I wish I'd done that ouch thing. Awesome. Awesome. You know, we've been looking to the past and talking about a book that's 18 years old, but keeps get, getting up steam. I, I wonder, what are you looking forward to? Well, I, I have another book that came out uh, about a year and a half ago called Dating Essentials for Men uh, that I, I, I had to learn how to date when I got divorced, also about 18 years ago, and uh, got good enough at it that my clients started saying, Robert, teach us. And I thought, I'll never teach men how to date. I don't. But anyway, so that came out of that. I'm working on another book right now called Positive Emotional Tension um, that talks about how women have to experience emotional tension to be attracted to a man and have sexual arousal towards him. And in general, we men hate emotional tension in relationship and then wonder why we don't attract women or why they're not uh, turned on by us and why they don't want to stick around. So that book addresses that. Over here to my right is a whiteboard of 10 books I want to write in the next 10 years. I'm, I'm working on uh, a No More Mr. Nice Guy movie script. I uh, would love to do a graphic novel, maybe a series of graphic novels for like adolescent boys around nice guys uh, stuff and positive emotional tension. Um, so I, I, I got plenty, plenty to work on. My, my intention is to keep writing for a while. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I wish you luck with all that. They all sound extremely needed, unfortunately, but, uh, but yeah, good for you. 
So what, what's the best way for people to, to learn more about what you're up to and connect with you? Uh, just go to drglover.com, D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. It has all my books, all my classes, all my podcasts, all my workshops, uh, all, all in one place. I have a couple of other websites as well, datingessentialsformen.com and nomoremrniceguy.com. But Dr. Glover will, will, will give you the, the basics of everything. Awesome. I really appreciate your, your work, your, your growth, your sharing of your growth, encouraging other men to do the same. Uh, thanks for your time today. Um, I know I've, I've enjoyed it immensely. I know everyone that's read, the, read your book and is, is now running to buy the book right now on Amazon is oh. uh, excited too. All, all the links mentioned, visit realmenfeel.org. The show notes for this, uh, the show notes for this episode, we'll have everything talked about, all of Dr. Glover's books, all the other things mentioned today, um, opportunities for coaching, for group coaching, uh, to, to set boundaries, to learn how to be the authentic, well-rounded, happy, healthy, joyous man you have a right to be. Um, I think too many men think that you know, those emotions don't go with manliness and they, they freaking do. They freaking do. All right, cool. So until next time, thanks again for listening and be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about author, coach, and healer Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us greatly if you gave a review wherever you are listening right now.